pencil pointing me in the face. It's really narrow. It's very narrow beam, so it's got to be pointing right here, or it doesn't pick up quite right. So there we go. I um, wanted to invite our children to Children's Church. Your uh, teacher will meet you in the back, and uh, they get to go study the scriptures in a more age-appropriate setting as we look into uh, Genesis 48 together here. So let me open us in a, in a word of prayer, and then we'll take a look at the text. Lord, we thank you for riding in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Uh, the, the triumphant, the reigning king, the king who would conquer sin and death and hell, entered into his, his glory on a donkey in humility and humbleness. And Lord, as you told the Pharisees, if you commanded the, the, if the people were silent, even the rocks would cry out because of the greatness of what you were about to do. And Lord, that's exactly what's happened is rocks everywhere are crying out to you. The nations who had been stone cold to the truth of who you were now cry out your name. And we're so grateful for that. Lord, thank you for triumphing on uh, Palm Sunday. And we thank you that we get to remember that. Lord, um, I want to pray for uh, my sister in Christ, Jeannie, as she's in the hospital uh, with uh, an appendicitis. And the surgery, Lord, has been described as complicated. And so, Lord, we, we, can, we entrust our sister into your hands. We know that, uh, Lord, you are uh, the giver of all good things. Lord, that you bring healing, that by Christ's stripes we have been healed. And uh, Lord, so we trust her to you. We know that you will bring about exactly what is right and what is good for Jeannie, what's right for Dick, what's right for uh, the whole family. Uh, but Lord, we ask on her behalf that you would give her a successful surgery and a good recovery. Um, bless her, we pray. And Lord, this morning I also want to pray for uh, Berean Fellowship in Palmdale. Lord, I pray for uh, Pastor Darrell as he's preaching this morning. Would you give him a measure of your spirit to open the word well to his congregation? And I pray that you would stir them to know and to trust and to love you. Lord, would you lead them to follow and to, to um, obey what they hear from your word? But most importantly, Lord, I pray that they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ that they would see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and that as a congregation, they would love you more and then serve you better. And Lord, that's the same thing I ask for us. Would you just give us more of yourself? That's what we want this morning, is a bigger measure of who you are. So be with us now as we open the word. Lord, would you bless your word? And where it's profitable, may my, my words this morning help us. And where they're not profitable, Lord, let them just fade into dust. But we want more of Jesus Christ is what we ask. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray. Amen. So we're in chapter 48, and this is the final days of Jacob. You remember last week ended with he lived another 17 years and then he died. Um, so this is not Jacob speaking from the grave as he speaks. Um, that's Moses' way of writing where he'll kind of jump ahead and then come back and fill in. And so that's what he's doing for us now. So this section is, uh, starts with Joseph being told Jacob's sick. He's not doing well. And, and that sparks off the story. But for Jacob, if you focus on Jacob for a minute, what he's doing is he's in this cycle now, his last years on earth, and all the man is doing is blessing everything he sees. Last week, he ran into Pharaoh, and he blessed Pharaoh. This week, he blesses Joseph and Joseph's sons. Next week, he's going to bless the rest of his sons, and then he's going to pull his feet up into his bed and die. So Jacob, in his last years, Really, if you compare him to what we saw earlier, he is a different man. Almost every time we hear a word out of his mouth, he's talking about God. 
It's just amazing. But as we move into this section now, like we touched on it a little bit last week when he blessed Pharaoh. But I think it would be helpful at this moment to just do a real quick kind of a biblical theology of Old Testament blessing. What is Jacob accomplishing when he announces these, these blessings? What, what do the Hebrews understand a blessing to be? Um, well, first of all, the word bless in Hebrew is barach, which at its root, at its base meaning, what it means is to kneel. So to bless someone is to kneel. So is it to kneel down to him? No, because what that's getting at, the hint of what that gets to is to barak is to kneel. It's to kneel in worship. And so when, when somebody would kneel in worship, they're invoking God. And so that's why that kind of blends into this idea of blessing. So the Hebrew concept of blessing is not, I'm just saying nice words wishing you well. It's not the hallmark blessing on a, you know, a pretty card with flowers on it. There's more to it than that. But at the same time, it's not Jacob thinking that he's going to come out and pronounce reality and, and speak these things into being. It's tied into that concept of worship. So when Jacob is blessing people, he's blessing based on what he knows of God. And he, he's, he's trusting in God and he's pronouncing to these people, this is God's word. So as we look at Jacob at the end of his life, his blessings are in some places prophetic. They are God announcing what is going to happen. And you get that because Moses was writing this 400-something years later. So he's looking back. He's remembering the words that, that Jacob had said, and he's interpreting for us, this is how these things came to be. So we can see Jacob is being prophetic. At the time, he was just a feeble old man, and Jake, uh, Joseph didn't understand Dad speak in prophetic words. From our vantage point, we can look back and say that. But at the, at the time, it was hard for him to see. So this theology of blessing is these words have meaning. But these words have meaning because they flow from who God is. So for example, in Genesis chapter 1, God said to the birds and to the fish, be fruitful and multiply and fill the seas and let the birds multiply in the earth. He blessed them and said that. And so the birds and the fish did that. When God blesses, it's his intention. It's what happens. In Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, man and women, and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and over the birds and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That wasn't just a hallmark wishful thought. That was God's blessing. That was his announcement of what was going to happen. So there is a little bit more to a blessing than we tend to think and sometimes a little bit less to a blessing. It's got to be rooted in what God has said and what God has done. And it's looking forward to seeing how God is going to fulfill these things. It's, it's more than a wishful thought, and it's more than believing that you're commanding reality. It's in, instead, it's speaking God's words. And to just prove that, just to buttress that a little bit, the first part of what happens here is um, Jacob recalls God's covenant. And when he recalls God's covenant, everything he's about to do and say flows out of the promise that God has made him in this covenant. So Jacob is not inventing something new. He's simply walking in the blessing that God has already given him. And he's sharing it with his family. So here's what he says. Joseph is told your father is ill. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. I like the way Steve says it better, but I don't think I can quite say it that way because I've been saying Ephraim for a long time. So... Hear Steve's voice when I say that, because I think it carries much more weight. Um, he brings his two sons, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim, 
um, and he comes to his father. And Jacob's first words out of his mouth is not, how are you doing? How are the kids? Is the famine over yet? His first words out of his mouth are, God Almighty, El Shaddai. He begins to speak to his son, this magnificent ruler in Egypt, and the first thing he has to say is God's name. The last thing that he'll say in this section is God's name again. So he says, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. God blessed me, now I'm about to bless others. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. That's the first thing he announces to Joseph and Ephraim and Manasseh, because what he's about to do flows from that covenant promise. So he states right at the beginning the covenant promise so that everybody understands it, so that we remember. Now, when he says that God appeared to me at Luz, where's that? What was going on with that? Well, Luz was actually um, a place called Bethel, the house of God, Bethel. Uh, Genesis 28, 19, Jacob called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. So he's talking about this episode that took place at Bethel, the house of God. What happened there, if you remember, is Jacob is fleeing from his brother because his brother's going to kill him because he stole his birthright. And he's heading up into Haran to go get a wife. So he's fleeing and he's heading to, and about halfway there, he stops at Luz and he sets a rock up and puts his head on a rock. And there's a song by Michael Card that talks about the head was as hard as the rock it rested on. And so he falls asleep there. And as he's dreaming, he sees God. And he sees this ladder extend from the earth to heaven and angels climbing up and down the ladder. And he hears God standing over him, pronounce his covenant blessing. Just like I pronounced his covenant blessing to Abraham and I reiterated it to Isaac, now, Jacob, I'm pronouncing this covenant blessing to you again. And that's the episode that he's thinking of. That's what he's looking to as he starts into this. And so now all he's going to do is flowing from that covenant promise. This is a man who earlier, remember, we saw him as really double-dealing, liar, swindler, kind of, you know, trying to cheat to get his way. This is now a man who's been walking with God that whole time. This is a different person. Now he's listening to God. Now he doesn't feel like he needs to steal his brother's birthright. Now he knows God has promised it to him. And so we'll hear him even refer to God as his shepherd, who's been shepherding me this whole time. This is a different guy. And this is good news because I need to be a different guy too. So now what comes next is um, Jacob is going to deal with Joseph's sons. And listen to what he says. After he announces the covenant promise, he says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Simeon and Reuben are mine. And the children that you father after them, they shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of your brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So what he does, doesn't that, now this has troubled me since I read it. He steals Joseph's sons. He just looks at Joseph and goes, those two, they're mine. What is going on there? What possessed him to do this? Why would he decide that he's going to take Joseph's sons? Well, 
First of all, there was no concept in ancient Hebrew law for adoption. It just wasn't a thing that was done. Uh, it became a law more towards the time of the Greeks. It wasn't well ad uh, attested, but the Romans had a really robust adoption law. So what, Joseph, what Jacob is doing here is he's essentially adopting Joseph's two sons as his own. And his move, though, is really unprecedented. This, it, it, if this sounded weird when we read it, it's supposed to, because it's a weird thing. This doesn't happen very often. What gave him the idea he was allowed to? He's the patriarch. This is his family. He will handle his family as he decides fit. But there's more to it than that. He has God's covenant blessing. And do you remember what the blessing was? That you, I'm going to make you a multitude of people. I am going to multiply you. You will be a number of people. Jacob, that's what's going to happen. So what he's doing is he's acting on faith, and he's stepping out, and he is adopting Joseph's two sons as his own. Now, does that exclude Joseph from the blessing here? Because Joseph now has just lost his two sons. Actually, it doesn't exclude him. There's no tribe of Joseph, per se. There's two tribes of Joseph. So whereas his brothers will get one-twelfth of the promised land, Joseph will get two-twelfths or a sixth of it because now instead of one tribe from him, there's two tribes. So he's just richly, he's blessed his, his son Joseph above and beyond the other brothers by taking his two sons and saying, they are now mine because now they stand with the other brothers as inheritors. That's why he says, as Simeon and Reuben are mine, now these two are. Simeon and Reuben were his two firstborn children. And so now he's saying, Manasseh and Ephraim are just as much my children as them. The inheritance that God's promised me, this, this land that they're going to go possess, Ephraim and Manasseh now receive part of that land. And so that's done to double Joseph's inheritance. It's a huge blessing on him. One of the reasons Moses probably wrote this is the, the tribes of Israel, as they're traveling, they needed to understand, um, wait, You've already told us about the brothers, and why are Ephraim and Manasseh part of our tribes, not just clans in the tribe of Joseph? And so Moses kind of unpacks that for them. He says, here's the family history, you guys. This is what's going on, is your father adopted them. Now, one of the questions I always ask, and I hope this rings in your ears, is, okay, that's very interesting, but for us, so what? What does it matter? Why, why do we, you know, this is interesting. It's, it's fascinating history, but how does that affect us? How does it apply to us? And the way that it applies to us is, it really surprised me as I was working on unpacking this. The way it applies is this establishes a godly Christian doctrine of adoption because we are adopted into God's family. And what we see is in the patriarch, we see this kind of picture, this beginning formation of what God is going to do. So um, the first question you might ask is, wait, aren't we all, isn't all people, aren't they God's children? Uh, Acts 17 says, but then God, being then God's offspring, we ought to think that the, uh, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. So Paul says, well, we're all offspring of God. So aren't we all children? Why do we get adopted if we're already his children? Well, because that's not what Paul is talking about there. He's speaking in terms of we're in the image of God. 
and God has done these things. So in one sense, we are God's offspring in that he created us. But the reality that when we look at a bigger biblical picture, look at Genesis chapter 5. Adam was God's son. Adam sinned. Adam fell. And then he had children in his own image. So we are children of Adam first and foremost. And by the way, what did Adam do for us? He got us orphaned. He alienated us from our God. And so when we talk about all of humanity, we're talking about a, a, a group of orphans. And they needed to be adopted. They need to be adopted into God's family. So that's the relationship that we're in with God, is we are now um, a, a, um, orphans. We're, we're alienated from him. We're cut off from him. But there's good news in this as well, because what Jacob did for us is set this precedent. And here's how Paul picks it up in, in the New Testament. Um, he mentions it in a couple of different places. Um, I think the best one is Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 13. Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So for us, we experience the great news of adoption. And, and didn't Jesus teach us to pray, our Father? The Israelites didn't do that. The Old Testament has a couple of places where they roughly refer to God as Father. But generally speaking, nobody approached God as Father until Jesus came. And then under Jesus, Jesus has the boldness to say, not only is he the Son of God, but calls us to call God our Father as well. So when he rises from the dead, when he's come from, back from the dead, and he meets Mary in the garden, he looks at Mary and he says, don't hang on to me. Go and tell my brothers to meet me in Galilee. I have not ascended to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Jesus is the one who introduces us into this relationship of God as our Father. He gets us adopted. Now, unpacking this section from Romans 8, Tim Keller did a nice job. He, he helps us understand some of this. And he brings up seven points. That was four. Seven points. Um, that I think just kind of highlight it. And what I'll try to do is tie those into Jacob adopting Ephraim and Manasseh. So the first one he says is, what we gain from our adoption as sons of God is we gain security. He says, you will not fall back into fear. So you were in fear, you were alienated from God, but because of the spirit of adoption that's in you, now you don't fall back in fear. So we have this security. We've been adopted. Our Father has fixed his love on us. The second one is authority. He says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery. We weren't slaves to sin and not sons, and now we are sons. And so the same thing happens with Ephraim and Manasseh, is they have this authority because now Jacob has just put them on equal footing with all the other brothers. They're, they're going to inherit just like the other brothers did. So they have this, this authority with the other brothers as heads of their tribes, not as clans under the tribe, but their own tribal heads. And then there's intimacy. We cry, Abba, Father. 
by the spirit of adoption that's in us, we cry to God and we call him Abba, Father. Abba is an is a, um, Aramaic word that means daddy or dad. It's a, it's a term of intimacy. And father is um, a Greek word that means father. So he, what he does here is he picks up the Hebrew and the, the Jew together and says, together we have been adopted. Together we call out to God and we yell at him as a father. We have this intimacy with our father where we can talk to him like that. We can draw near and we can be with him. I've said it before, and it just is a really good picture. The slave doesn't walk into the king's bedroom at 2 o'clock in the morning and ask for a glass of water. Only the son gets to do that. If the slave does it, the slave ain't around for very much longer. If the child does it, the father gets up and gets his son a glass of water. That's the kind of intimacy that we have in our adoption as sons of God. It's a beautiful intimacy. And that's what Ephraim and Manasseh now are going to experience as well, is they can call the patriarch, they can call Jacob father. They have this new relation, not for very long because he's about to die, but they get to have this new relationship with him, this intimacy with him that they hadn't previously. They had to go through Jacob, or I mean uh, Joseph previously. The other thing that we gain from our adoption as, as uh, children of God is we gain an assurance the verse says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirits. So how do you know that you have been adopted? How do you know that you have God as your father? As you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, crying out within you, Abba, Father. You have the Holy Spirit within you, testifying with your spirit, there is a new relationship that I have with God. I desire to be with God. I have this new relationship. I have this assurance that this is a thing he did. Ephraim and Manasseh can look at Jacob and go, we didn't barge in, we didn't beg. This was his idea. He called us his sons. And so we have the assurance now we can go out and face our uncles and say, we are on the same footing as you because our father has done that. So we have that, that assurance. The fifth thing is we have an inheritance. And isn't that exactly what Ephraim and Manasseh gained in being adopted as Jacob's sons? They have an inheritance. When the promised land is divided up, they will get a chunk of the promised land. They will be part of the tribes of Israel that go into the promised land. But we have an inheritance in, as well as we are adopted. He says, and if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs with Christ. So because Jesus has won our adoption, has drawn us into the family of God, because we're under God now in Christ, we have an inheritance. Galatians 3.29 says, if you're in Christ, then you are children of Abraham, heirs according to promise. You get what, what Jacob has pronounced is an inheritance for you. That's what we get as adopted children. And the beautiful thing is, Abraham was told, you get this chunk of real estate. According to Romans chapter 4, we don't just get that chunk of real estate, we inherit the entire world. The inheritance got better because the, the offspring got bigger. So that's the inheritance that we're waiting for. And then, hard part here, discipline. Um, we are heirs provided that we suffer with him. So the suffering is not outside of God's hands. It's not like we suffer and God is just like, oh, I'm sorry that happened. God is our adopted father. He has drawn us into his family. And what does a father do with his children? He disciplines them. There are times when we will suffer. There are times when we will be filled with joy. 
And with children, that's what you do. There are times when you spank them, and there are times when you just cuddle them and snuggle up to them and love them. And, and so what we gain in our adoption as children of God is we gain a God who loves us and is disciplining us, who is leading us to a location. And the last one is the good news of where that location is. We gain a family likeness. If we share in his suffering, we will be like our big brother. We will be like Jesus who has brought us in. And that's what they're doing. That's what's happening is God is drawing us in and he's saying, I want you to be more like Jesus. He doesn't say, get to be more like Jesus and I'll consider you. What he says is, come and I'll make you more like Jesus. We get this family identity, this family likeness. And this is what's happening with Ephraim and Manasseh. Who was their mom? Do you remember? The daughter of an Egyptian priestess, they are essentially Egyptians. They've got an Egyptian mom, a dad who looks for all intents and purposes Egyptian because his brothers didn't even recognize him. They've spent their entire life in Egypt. All they know is Egyptian. And now what happened is Jacob says, no, now you're Hebrews. You're mine. You are children of, of the, uh, the, the promise, the covenant promise. And so he welcomes them into their Hebrew identity, who they are now. So we get this family likeness just like they got that family likeness. They grow in that way. And so it's, it's just a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we are made new in Christ. When we're brought in, we are adopted. And what we have to remember is these things are true no matter if they feel like it or not. If you're in Christ, you are an adopted child of God. So I'm thinking of Jeannie, and she's got to be wondering what's going on. I'm having these physical pains. But you know what she said? I'm in God's hands. Jeannie is thinking, even in this moment, while she's in pain, while she's facing complicated surgery, she's thinking like an adopted child of God. She's, she's risking everything on her adoption and saying, I trust my father. I know he'll bring about what's right. He's a good father. He loves me. So our adoption brings us so much more than you'd ever think. With Jacob extending his family to, his, to uh, Joseph's sons, they didn't lose, they only gained. They gained a, a great inheritance, a beautiful picture of what comes. And so there's, a, there's a, um, a sermon by a Scottish minister named Robert Murray McShane. And he was preaching a sermon on 1 John 1.3, which says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we are called sons of God. Now, I just want to... Before I get to McShane, I take a little sidestep here. I've said it before, but is it sexist to say sons of God and exclude daughters? Uh, there was somebody I was reading, I can't remember who it was, they said it would be watering down the good news if they said sons and daughters, because under Roman law, sons inherit, daughters don't. Now, that's maybe right, maybe wrong. It's just the way it was. But for Paul to say, you are a son of God, even if you're a daughter, even if you're a woman, what he's promising is you will equally inherit. And that's what Peter says is, he says, be, be patient with your wives who are co-heirs. So that's the blessing of even ladies calling you sons of God is a huge blessing because it, it ensures your inheritance. So what a blessing it is for us that we should be called sons of God. And this is how McShane, part of what he says uh, as he unpacks it, he says, the first thing that makes it a blessedness is that we get the love of the Father. The moment you become a child, the Father loves you. 
This is shown in what Mary, Christ said to Mary, I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Christ here intimated that we have the same love that he had. We have not got so much of the love of the Father as Christ because he got it infinite quantity. So what he's saying is we don't get as much love of the Father as Jesus did because Jesus is infinite. But we do get a share of it to the, the, uh, the capacity that we can take. We get that same love. And, and the beautiful picture he paints is he says, the sun shines as much on a daisy as it does on a sunflower, though the sunflower is able to contain much more because the sunflower is so much bigger. We get the same love of God that Jesus gets. He just gets more of it because he's been around longer. He's always been with the Father. McShane goes on, he says, another part of the blessedness of being a son of God is you get the likeness of the Father. You know this is the case in an adopted family. An adopted child in the course of time gets, very familiar, gets the very features of the family. So you get the image of the Father and you get the love of the Father. You were taught that in Matthew 5, where Christ says in his Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. Have you the mark of this adoption? Are you turning like God? Are you able to do those things? That's the benefit, that's the fruit of being adopted by God is he is bringing you into his family. He's conforming you to the image of his family. Now, one of the things that we've said about Joseph is he is a type of Christ. He is, he is a, like a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. We don't get everything Joseph ever did, but the pictures that we get of him picture Jesus Christ. And so um, he didn't need to be adopted, did he? He was already a son of Jacob. Did Jesus need to be adopted? Jesus was never adopted. Jesus was eternally the Son of God. So he didn't need to be adopted. He loses nothing by bringing his brothers and sisters in. He is already in, in that position. So though, um, though Joseph's children were Egyptian-born, because of Joseph, they're brought into the covenant. And it's the same thing throughout. Because we are foreign-born to God, born in sin, because of Jesus, our big brother, he brings us into the covenant with God. So that's a way that Joseph is a picture of uh, Jesus Christ for us in that we now become inheritors of that covenant blessing. So that's the, the, the doctrine of adoption. Tremendously great news for the Christian. We get to call God our father. We get to approach him like that. It's a wonderful thing. What comes next now is he starts the blessing. Um, so verses uh, 48 through, I don't have it, it's on the next page. Um, Israel asks, whose are these? So he hears some voices with him. He says, whose are these? And Joseph says, these are my sons. And then right after that, it says, the eyes of Israel were dim. And what that means is he was beginning to lose his vision. So he, he couldn't tell who was standing there. And what, um, what Moses is doing here is he's setting up to explain another part of why the tribes are the way they are. Um, so it looks like, well, Jacob just can't see well. So what he's about to do is he's going to mess it up, and, and we're with Joseph. No, Dad, it doesn't go that way. We, we need to sort this out. 
Um, but what, Joseph, what uh, Jacob does, he actually does on purpose. And what it is, is it's a kingdom blessing. It's a kingdom of God blessing. Um, so he, 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 uh, Joseph, it says he took both Ephraim, um, or he took both of the children from his knee. Now remember, he went in to talk to Pharaoh and told Pharaoh what was going on. Pharaoh blessed him, gave him his wife. She had two children. That's seven years of plenty. Now we're into two years of famine. So these kids are probably seven or eight years old. So they're sitting on dad's knee. These aren't young adults standing. They're little kids. And so he takes them from his knee and he, he swaps them so that they'll be in the right order as they come to Jacob. Because the right hand is, that's your right hand. The right hand is a hand of blessing. The left hand is the lesser of the two. So he wants to make sure that when dad puts his hand out, the older is under the right hand, the younger is under the left hand, so that the older gets the bigger blessing. And what Jacob does is totally surprising. He crosses his arms, and he announces the blessing. And, and Joseph is thinking like we are, no, Dad, you got that wrong. We got to fix this. And Jacob says, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. And the way the section ends, it says, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Um, it seems like it's wrong, like it's upside down, but God has repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly chosen the younger over the older. Jacob knows that intimately. Rebecca was told before he was born, the older will serve the younger. So he knew that that's how God operates. He'd seen it happen before. And God repeatedly does it over and over again. David is the youngest of seven and God picks him. Gideon is the youngest in his tribe and is a small tribe, and God says, no, you're going to be the one that does it. God picks the least and puts him ahead. And that's the kingdom principle that Jesus said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. That's what it means to be an adopted child of God, is to adopt that upside-down view of the world. Do you want to be first? Go ahead and be first. But to be first, you have to be last. To be the greatest, to be the most magnificent, the top of the heap, you serve everyone else. Jesus, who is God the incarnate, comes in the form of a servant, dies a death that we deserve. Do you need a bigger picture to get this idea of serving the least? It doesn't get any bigger than Jesus. So this is a kingdom principle that, that Jacob is doing. Is he announces this blessing on those sons. He flips them around. And that's how it is for us. We were adopted not because we were the top of the heap, but because we were the bottom of it, because God sought us out and he found us. So Jacob blesses Joseph, and he says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this long day, or my lifelong to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let the name be carried on. And the name of the father of uh, my father. Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Again, do you see what he's done? He's taken the covenant promise, and he's pronounced it on them. His, his blessing is not divorced from what God has said. He's acting on the information that God has given them. The God of my father, who's been my shepherd. Do you remember what he said last week when Pharaoh said, how old are you? He said, 130 years, my, my days have been few and evil, few and difficult in the earth. And, and at the time, I mentioned that commentators thought he was whining. You know, he's complaining again. He's not, because look what he says here. He turns it all upside down. He says, yeah, my days have been few and evil, 
but God is my shepherd. God has been shepherding me through this. Even though I couldn't see it at the time, even though I thought I had to, to um, wrangle something out of uh, Laban to get a flock, even though I thought I had to steal my birthright from my brother, even though I did all those things, what I'm looking back now and I'm saying, God has been my shepherd through all of this. He has been the one who's been all over this. He is the angel who redeemed me from all evil. So my days have been evil, and yet God has redeemed me from that. So he's counting again in his blessing. He's counting again. He's reminding us again of who God is, what God has promised, and then he blesses the boys. So it's, it's all dependent. It's all contingent on God's faithfulness to his covenant. And so how does he do this? How did he, how did he possibly make these announcements? How could he possibly pronounce these covenant blessings on the boys? Hebrews 11 tells us. Hebrews 11.21 says, By faith, Jacob when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. The blessing came as he bowed in worship. The blessing is tied to the worship. The blessing flows from the worship, not independent of it. So that's who Jacob is. That's what he's done for his boys. That's how he blesses them. And Joseph is blessed in this too. Joseph gets to watch his sons grow and become a great nation. He's not cut off from the covenant. He just has a different place in it now. And so the last portion, what's going to happen is we're going to see Jacob rest in the covenant promises one more time. So verse 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. So what he's doing again is he's, he's saying, look, I'm about to go. I'm not going to make it. I am not going to see the covenant fulfillment, the promises fulfilled when we take over the, the land that we wandered in. I'm going to die. But what you hear in this is a tremendous amount of faith because what he says is, God will bring you into the land of your fathers. He promises, I have given you land in the land of Canaan. You'll take this slope of this mountain. He's already looking ahead and he's saying, I know, even though I'm not going to make it, I know God is going to be faithful and he's going to lead you all back into that promised land. You're going to take it. You're going to go there. I think that's why at the beginning he mentioned Rachel's death. As Rachel is now buried in the promised land, Jacob is looking forward to going to the promised land. And he's promised that. And he's looking to, um, to Joseph to fulfill that. The difficult one comes in verse 22. It says um, that he gave him a slope that he took from the hand of the Amorites with a sword and a bow. Um, where is that? Uh, we're not exactly sure. But uh, here's a clue. Uh, that, that idea of a mountain slope, the Hebrew word is Shechem. So this might be He's looking to the city of Shechem, and do you remember what happened there? Dinah was raped, and her brothers went and slew everybody in the town. And so he did, in a way, take it with his sword and with his bow. Um, so it could be that what he's referring to here, here is, I'm giving you Shechem. So your two sons, your tribes will inherit that part, and I'm not giving it to anybody else. He's already divvying up the promised land. They're not even there, and he's already breaking it up and giving it away. 
This is a man of tremendous faith. He is trusting in God's promises, and he's not even shaken about it. And he's looking at it and going, I'm going to die before I see it. And I still trust that God's going to do it. He's still going to bring it about. That is a, that's a man who has put his hope in God to be faithful to his promise. And so that's what it means for us. Jo- Jacob knew he was a child of God. He knew God had secured his promises to him. And we can tell that we are secure because God has adopted us. He has fixed his love on us. There's an illustration that uh, a Puritan named Thomas Cham- Chalmers, Chalmers, I think that's how you pronounce it, used he was to talk about the adoption that we experience. And he's saying we can know adoption, but we also experience adoption. He said there was a time he was walking down a path and a father and a son were walking in front of him. And the father was holding the son's hand and they were walking. And suddenly the father turned around, swooped the son up, and just started hugging and lavishing kisses on him. And the boy's laughing and squirming in his arms. And he said, that's the difference, is we can know, did the child doubt as he's walking with his father's hand? Did he doubt that he was a child of God, or that he was his father's son? He didn't doubt it, but he experienced it when that father swooped him up and started kissing him and hugging him and loving him. He said, now I can feel it. And that's what Chalmers said is our experience with our adoption is it's not purely intellectual where we go, oh, I know this to be true. I've got it on a little prayer card, put it in my pocket, I remember it. We also experience because God has shed his spirit. He's put his spirit in us and causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. So with that kind of experience of God, we can hold on to his promises just as tight as Jacob did. Even when we look over the horizon and go, I'm not going to get there. I won't see it happen. I will probably die before Jesus returns, but he promised me he would. And so I'm counting on that. I will be dead before the new heavens and the new earth come. By all probability, I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. But I can be assured that there'll be a day where I'll be walking in those streets. Because God has given me that promise. He's adopted me as a son. He has fixed his spirit on me. His love is attached to me. He scooped me up off the path, and he nuzzled me, and he kissed me, and he hugged me, and he said, I love you. You're my boy. And that's the hope that we have. That's our experience of adoption. So as Jacob has blessed Ephraim and Manasseh and brought them these great promises, God is doing even more so with you. Do you experience that? Do you ever have a time where you just look around and you go, I can't believe all that God has done for me? all the blessings he's bestowed on me. Do you ever look and go, you know, I used to be this way, but God has really been working in my life and look where I'm at now. He's conforming me to the image of his son because I am his son, because he's brought me in, he's adopted me. I have an inheritance waiting in heaven and I can't wait to get it. And it's sure. That's what Jacob has just done for us, is he's taught us about adoption. And the cool thing is, if you think about it, since Ephraim and Manasseh were really largely Egyptian, it's picturing in a very broad way God bringing the nations in, God going out to the foreign people and drawing them into the covenant as well. And and it just reminds me of um, Isaiah, I can't remember where it is, I think it's around 25 or so, and he talks about Egypt and he says, Egypt, my people. Assyria, my blessing. Israel, my gift. Something along those lines. And it's just so beautiful to think God bringing the nations in was not plan B. It was what he had promised all the way back here from Jacob. Jacob pictured it. 
Isaiah prophesied it, Jesus brought it about, and now he sends us out to go do it. So let's go out and invite people into the adoption that we've been given. It's made available for the least of these, the last first. So that's who we go to is the last first. Let's pray. Lord, I just sometimes can't even get my head around the fact that I can call you Father, not in a formal, technical, detached way, but in the way that a son calls his father, Father. Lord, I can pray to you and I can call out to you as my Father. Lord, I pray that you would increase my faith so I can believe that indeed I am a son of God. I'm adopted into your family, grafted in because of Jesus Christ. And Lord, would you reassure all of us? I pray that all of us would have an experience this week. Lord, would you please give us this? Give us an experience this week of being scooped up off the path, hugged tightly and kissed by a father who loves us. Lord, let us experience and know our adoption, that we are indeed sons of God. What love has been bestowed on us that we should be called that? Thank you for your care and your love for us, Lord. We certainly don't deserve it. Amen.